Welcome to Coastline Church, seeking renewed faith in Humboldt County by being settled and secure in God's love. To learn more, visit coastlinefoursquare.com. So we're doing Acts 22. Um, I really I say this so that at least you'll get the point, even if I flub up. Uh, the thing I see in this chapter and actually it's all the chapters leading up to it, is a lot of passion, a lot of compassion, a lot about encounter and attachment. Um, so just a little bit of review. Uh, we had all the compassion, oh thank you, thanks, and all the passion that was with Paul saying goodbye to people as he went back to Jerusalem. So just recall that in past chapters, there was a lot of touching moments, a lot of crying, a lot of weeping, because Paul had deep attachment to people. I've heard people often say things like, well, Paul was an apostle all about faith, and John was all about love. And I always want to ask him, have you read the epistles? <laughs> because Paul is full of passion and deep compassion and attachment. I mean, even, even 2 Corinthians, which people often refer to as like the, the, the epistle where Paul like gets hard-nosed. But in the midst of that epistle, he says things like, why have you closed your heart to me? Why have you closed your heart to us? We never close our hearts to you. Is that he's, he's actually a man of a lot of passion. The reason why I'm adding uh, 1 Corinthians 9 is because Acts 22, Acts 21 and 22, are a great example of how Paul did exactly what he talks about in 1 Corinthians 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, for being free from all, I can make myself a slave to all. So he's saying, no one can compel me to anything, but I am now free to choose. It reminds me of where Jesus said, no one can take my life from me. I choose to lay it down, and I will choose to pick it up again. <clears throat> In order to gain more people, so I make myself a slave all to, make, to gain more people. To the Jews, I became as Jew to gain the Jews. To those under the law, I became as under the law. Though my, I myself am not under the law. So he's saying, I'm not bound by anything, but I will live that way if it's going to reach the Jews. To gain those under the law. To those without law, I became as without law. Not being without law of God, but legally of Christ. To gain those without law. And, and literally the word is unlaw. He's saying to those unlaw. Um, not, not like they're outlaws. But he's saying it's unlawful, meaning those that were never even taught it, that are totally unaware of it. And he said to those that aren't bound by it, don't even have a heritage of it, I became like them. But they made it clear, but legally I am still Christ. You know, and some translations say I still obey the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is, it says some of the other places, is the idea of loving God and loving one another. Big emphasis on loving one another. <clears throat> In fact, it's uh, the, the literal part legally of Christ kind of play on words, he says, I am like one unlaw, though I'm in law with the Father and I'm in law with Christ. To the weak I became weak, to gain the weak, to all I have become all, that all ye, any be saved. Okay, that's, that's really bad English. Um, sorry, I got this from transliteral versions. Um, but it's, it's kind of fun. I, just, I find it fun. Paul likes to do a lot of play on words. That's why when some people get bent about every phrase, it's like sometimes he's just being kind of clever. And the word pan, there's different versions of the word pan for all. 
and he just throws it in there three times. Because he's saying, to the all, I become all, that all, any be saved. And so I know that's bad grammar, Ali, but it's his way of saying Ali means without a doubt. So the Greek word was like they'd use, without a doubt, people from any ethnic group can be saved, is his point. But it was just a play on Greek words he was using. So basically, he becomes like all things to all men, as a lot of translations say. But the idea is because, regardless of whatever their background is, I want to see them saved. I do these things because of the gospel. So a together communioner, I know that's not a real word either in English, but it's, it's the literal. A together communioner or joint participant of it I may be becoming. The actual word for joint participant actually is, it's the word for communion, but it's, it's actually a noun version of the word communion and the word joint. So it's basically joint or put together, a together communioner. And I had to throw that in because we're doing communion day, and I had to show some way I'm tying this to communion. <clears throat> okay. So in Acts 21, we see him live this out. Because Paul, knowing that he's going to get arrested, knowing there's going to be problems, is going to the Jews. But he agrees to do something that they ask. The, the local Jewish Christians asked him, hey, will you pay for the vow and ceremony of some guys that have taken, uh, so basically these, these other brothers had taken a vow. Most likely from the way it's phrased, a Nazarite vow, which is a month-long vow. But when you do this month-long vow, in the last week of it is often when you shave your head, do a preparation, and then celebrate the last week. And at that time, you can ask someone to join you. And so what they were saying is, hey, these guys that are taking this vow, will you join them and pay their expenses that way, the Jews will see you're not, you're not telling all the Jews they can't live by the law. They can't do Jewish ritual. And Paul, who knows there isn't a value in that itself, agrees to do it. Because he's all things to all men. Um, it's similar, like we said, even earlier we read, you know, he became weak to those that are weak. What he's referring to is what he also says in Romans, which is, hey, I know I could eat anything. Idols are nothing. I could eat meat that idols, it's been sacrificed to idols, doesn't bother me at all. But if it bothers somebody else, I would give up meat completely if that's what it takes for someone to come to the Lord. So, so the whole idea of this, I will be weak in faith, meaning I'll worry about ritual or, what, or practices if that's what it takes. So he does all that, and then he still gets nailed because Jews from out of the area, Jews from the, the parts in, the, in Turkey mainly, uh, what's common, well, what's now Turkey anyway, they come and cause trouble for him. And as, as uh, was explained last week, Linda explained really clearly, a lot of misunderstanding. They see him with a Gentile, and then they just assume he went in the temple with them, which he did not do. And there's other misunderstandings. And for that, you can play last week's tape. Um, but I want to get to this part, because where it ended in 21 is, he asked, can I address the crowd? Because basically, uh, the legion, actually it's the, the ruler, or no, not the ruler, I'm losing the word now. The commanding officer in that area is confused even why they're mad at him. Okay, so that comes up. And then Paul says, can I address the crowd? And he addresses them in Aramaic. Um, your Bible may say Hebrew. Aramaic was the modern Hebrew. Basically he's saying the language of that area, the language they would have been raised in, the language that they heard their family speak, he speaks in that language. Um, the language of the empire, well, actually there were two. There was Greek and Latin. 
and which one was used. I mean, all the things that the Greek commander would be fluent in Greek and Latin. Um, the emphasis of which one was used most often was actually what part of the, what part of the empire you're in. But people also spoke local dialects. So Paul already is developing an attachment to him because though he's fluent in Greek, he's going to speak in the native language of his listeners. And it's interesting, the whole, the whole tone he takes is this. He says, he starts out with, I'm a Jew. Because he's talking to Jews that are yelling and screaming to kill him. And he says, I'm a Jew, and I come from Tarsus, but I was brought up here in Jerusalem. So I'm a Jew, even though I'm from Tarsus, I was brought up right here in the same place you are. I studied under Gamaliel, and everybody there that, was, that knew anything about it knew. Gamaliel is like the premier teacher. So he's making it clear like, you're yelling at me about Jewish law, but, but I'm really, how am I putting this? I want it clear that Paul is fully surrendered to the gospel of Christ. But that doesn't mean we go all passive and not assertive. He has no problem saying, you want to talk about knowing the law? I studied under the best, so I'm aware of this. So I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors, because he's emphasizing, I'm not abandoning our ancestors. I was zealous for God, as any of you are today. So I was just as, just as passionate as you are right now. And the way they're showing the passion right now is they're screaming for his blood. Like they're so passionate that they're like, we got to kill this guy. And he was saying, just like you are right now, I have been there. That he goes on to say, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. He's implying, just like you're doing now, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priests and all the council, that actually means all the elders, can testify. Can they themselves say, they're there now. A lot of the elders and all that, they're there. So basically he's in Jerusalem saying, look, I was out there passionate. I was after him. In fact, go, you can ask him right now. They're right here. What I'm telling you is true. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So he's saying, yeah, I, I, like I was taking what you did. You're, you're persecuting me at level 11. I took it to level 15. It's like I went all out. So I get where you are. And then he goes on to describe that at about noon on the way to Damascus. So I'm having a hard time turning around. So it'll, it'll be there. So you know I'm not fully lying, but I may pray, paraphrase a little. So he says, on the way to noon, on the way to noon, on the way to Damascus, about noon, he has this bright light flash at him, and he gets knocked flat. I mean, actually, the Greek says he was knocked to levelness. And that's like we say, oh, someone fell flat on their face. It's that kind of tone. It's like, I was knocked flat on my face and blinded by this light. And he's going, what is going on? And he hears this voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul asks him, well, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. So he tells them, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, who you were persecuting. And the people with Paul, they saw the light, and we know from other chapters, they even heard a sound, but they didn't know what the sound was. They couldn't tell what the voice was. And so he says, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord says, get up, go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that I've assigned you to. And so he does that. And Paul shortens it, but he leaves out some things, but... Um, because while Paul's doing that, and it's, you read this later when Luke writes in detail about Ananias. Because what happens is, Paul's blind, so they have to lead him into Damascus. And he's there for three days, blind, wondering what's going on. 
Meanwhile, God's talking to Ananias, a devout, faithful man, but saying, I want you to go to this guy, Saul, and heal him. And Ananias, you know, being a reasonable person, I'm faithful, Lord, but you do know this is the guy that swore to kill us all. So you're telling me to go up right to the guy that wants to arrest me. And that's what he does. And then when he does this, he goes to Paul. There's actually more talking than it goes to in this, in this particular chapter. But basically, he gets healed of his sight. And this is powerful, because we get, we get some detail here that isn't in chapter 9. He says, he says, this is after Paul gets instantly healed of his sight. Um, the literal Greek says, at that hour. But the phrase, at that hour, also can mean at that moment. So, at that moment, or at that hour, he's able to see and he says, the God of our ancestors has chosen you. So here's what God's done. He's chosen you to know his will. So he's been chosen to know his will, to pursue, to perceive. And some books say see, but it actually has to do with the idea of perceiving or get acquainted with. Like you didn't know somebody, it's time you get to know them. So he's, he's, he's chosen you to know his will, to be acquainted with the righteous one, and to hear the words from his mouth. And I find this interesting because people talk about calls and everything. But I can make clear, we all have the same call. We've all been chosen to know his will, to be acquainted with the one he sent at a very intimate level, and to hear the words from his mouth. You will be witnesses to all people. And it's interesting because the, the, the term used is the term where we get anthropology from, meaning all humans. So even at the start with this encounter, God's already bridging a mindset in Paul's mind that you're not going to be just to the Jews, is right from the start, you're going to be taking this message to all of humanity. <clears throat> and he's a testify of what he's seen and heard. Do I break this? Okay. Um, I, will, I will do what I mentioned. So Paul, Paul in this, this chapter, because he's building bonds to the people, he leaves out some things. Because it, it sounds like when you read it, like, oh, great, he had this encounter, and then he left Damascus and came to Jerusalem. What he doesn't bother emphasizing with the Jews, he stayed in Damascus a while. He preached in the synagogues, and a bunch of people came to the Lord. Some people came to the Lord, the local Jews got mad at him, and that's when the, the local people said, you've got to get out of Damascus. But, but with some wisdom, he doesn't bring that up now. But I just want to clear that the next line that comes in Scripture is not instantaneous. Um, so I, and also I left out the part where Paul does get baptized. But now he's saying, when I returned to Jerusalem, which was actually a little bit of time later, some days had gone by. He says, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance. And the word is actually the, the same Greek word we get the word ecstasy from. Ecstasy means out of. It can be out of your mind. Some people use it for out-of-body experience. But most likely it means, I fell into a trance. What he's saying is, I experienced something beyond my mental. It's like, this is not thoughts I just thought. This is not just a vision. Like, to me, I have to admit, I don't get visions from the Lord. I get mental pictures. But he's describing something way beyond that. This is an encounter that is actually out of mind. <clears throat> and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Again, he's left out stuff. And it's okay that this is taking a little while, because it means I can skip some other slides. That. I, I want to make this clear. It's, I love the way he's showing some wisdom because he's getting right to the point that they'll relate to. When Paul came back to Jerusalem, he didn't have that vision right away. 
He actually came back and shared the gospel, and people were even coming to Christ with Paul preaching in Jerusalem. And his life was getting threatened, and people were even saying, maybe you should leave. And then it's in that context, some days later, that he has this vision. <clears throat> the Lord, Lord, I replied, these people know I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. When the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And we, we have read that part. I want you to see Paul's desire in this, though. Because God's saying, get out of there. Even though Paul has to speak harshly about Jews and about, about the people he's frustrated with that won't receive Jesus, he never lost his attachment to them. He wants to stay. Because he's saying, whoa, whoa, wait, they, may, they won't kill me. They'll realize I was one of them. They'll realize, just like them, I was persecuting this, and I can be the one that leads them all to you, Lord. I really want to see them get saved. I mean, that, that's his whole heart. Like, he's willing to stay until God just says, no, you, you're going to go, and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So that wasn't his heart. This was his obedience. Okay? Because we need to see his heart in all this stuff. Because I, I want to make it clear, because some of it's glossed over. In 22, it doesn't bring out, but Saul was very effective to the point of being forced to leave Damascus and forced to leave Israel. Even though he was effective, God had a different call. Sometimes that's the hardest thing for us to do is to leave and obey God when we see, but, but God, you don't understand my, my heart for this. Um, I think a lot of us, we always have family we're concerned about. We were even just at a, a, a celebration of life service for some of my family. And there were some relatives I haven't seen in a long time, and I was trying my best to connect to them because he, they've been kind of, I mean, it's neat that they were even there because it's like restoring some connection. And then I was just at peace, like I tried to talk, and it just wasn't going anywhere. And I really felt like God said, you're okay. You're out here, and you tried, and now it's okay to walk away. It's like, it's just not, it's just not what's going to happen right now. <clears throat> so Saul and others knew Jesus as the Messiah, the risen Savior. I think this is powerful because one reason why God sent Paul to Damascus, you don't see it in this chapter, but you see it in things like the books of Galatians. He also sent Paul to Damascus, I'm sorry, not Damascus, he sent Paul to Arabia when he left Jerusalem because he needed three years to process. Because as much as he knew God and he knew the love of Jesus and he experienced this encounter, Paul had some thoughts in his mind that had to get straightened out. And Paul said, I had to spend three years, like this is such a shock, I had to basically spend three years to unlearn some things. And I had to spend three years for God to reveal the truth to me. It's interesting because while God's doing that with Paul in Arabia, at the same time he's doing it with the other apostles like Peter. Like while Paul's in Arabia, Peter has that whole thing with Cornelius where he has the vision of food coming down saying, rise, kill, eat, and it's unclean food. And Peter says, never. And he gets that awareness that God says, no, no. What God, what I say is clean, Peter, is clean. You don't get to call it unclean. And I just think it's interesting that God chose to do that while the two men were not near each other, so no one could think it was collusion. <clears throat> I think there's also power in this because I, I find, at least in my walk, awareness of former stupidity reminds us to be graceful. <laughs> because I was just reminded, I was in a Bible study on, I Zoom Bible study with some friends that I knew 40 years ago. They were in a uh, church plant car and I were part of 40 years ago. 
and we were saying some really heart-level things, and one of them just flat out said, you haven't always thought it was this way. And I'd admit and say, yeah, I admit, when we were on Bayside together, I said some really stupid stuff. <laughs> I, I even preached some stuff that I look back now and go, man, I am really glad there weren't tapes back then. No, one, no one's got it online. So uh, some really stupid stuff. And I think Paul learned a lot of that. He had to learn a lot of stuff, so it gives you grace to be inclusive. Because the whole way Paul can be all things to all men is the Jews may misunderstand, but he's like, yep, and I misunderstood too. And then the Gentiles misunderstand some things, and Paul still, and I misunderstood too. <clears throat> okay, his last sentence, then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentile, leads to crazy chaos. As soon as he says that part, because again, he's speaking Arabic, he's trying to make a, a nice connection, and but when he says, God told me he's going to tell me to leave, and he's going to send him to the Gentiles, they all lose their flipping minds. And they start screaming for his blood. They start, like, going nuts over this. And because of this, I thought it was still pretty powerful. Because, again, Paul's trying to make connection. And sometimes it doesn't work. Was Paul wrong to do this? No. Sometimes it just doesn't work. Um, in this chaos, there's even an interesting lesson that comes out of this. Because the Roman, the, the, the CO, the commanding officer... He probably doesn't speak Aramaic that well. He may know it somewhat. So he isn't even really sure, like, maybe what Paul was saying. So he definitely has no idea now. Like, he sees these people lose their minds, they want his blood, and he's going, this dude must have done something really bad, and I have no idea what it is. So he comes up with the normal Roman, Roman response. I know what we'll do. We'll take Paul, and we'll go have him flogged until he tells us what he did, so we'll know what's going on. Because that was not abnormal. That was pretty normal operation, except for one thing. In Rome, or sorry, in the Roman Empire, you could flog people for interrogation. You could actually use torture for it, unless they're a Roman citizen. And what Paul does, because again, he surrendered to God's will, but he doesn't just say, oh, well, I'm just going to be passive. I guess I get flogged now. No, as they're tying him up to stretch his back, he's, he makes a point to the centurion and says, so is what you're doing even legal? Like, I'm a Roman citizen. You have not even had a trial and found me guilty, and you're going to flog me? And actually, in Roman law, depending on what kind of citizens you are, even if you're found guilty, you don't get flogged, and you can't get crucified. This is why Paul wasn't crucified, or one of the reasons, is crucifixion could not be done, and flogging couldn't be done on full-level Roman citizens. So the centurion, and granted, he could even be skeptical, like, well, yeah, a lot of guys about to be flogged might say, oh, I'll claim I'm a citizen, then I won't get flogged. But the penalty, the penalty for not being, for claiming to be a Roman citizen, you're not, that also is flogging. And then he may be even death by flogging, like a slow but painful death. But he goes and tells the CEO and goes, what are you doing? This guy's a citizen, and we have him in chains, and you're going to flog him? It's like, we're all in deep trouble here. If, we don't, if you don't straighten this out. So the CEO goes to Paul and says, are you a citizen? And Paul says, yes. And, and I think this kind of shows maybe a little skepticism. He's going, well, yeah, I'm a citizen too, but I had to pay a lot of money to become a citizen. Because basically, you can buy your way in if you have enough money. I mean, it's not the only way, but if you have money and you have, quote, a clean record, you could actually get certain authorities to, to say, oh, yeah, I will now declare you a Roman citizen. Because even though, I mean, even though they did keep some records and such, you didn't get to walk around like a driver's license saying Roman citizen. 
If someone questioned you being a Roman citizen, your best defense was connection. Like, no, I'm a Roman citizen, and so-and-so over here or over there, they'll, they'll attest to it. Because that also explains the next part. Because after he says, I had to buy my Roman citizenry, Paul says, yeah, but I've been one since birth. And the only way that happens is your parents are citizens. So now the Roman, the Roman commander is realizing he's stating something so, so out there that I could verify this a lot. Because again, I mean, people are around each other all the time. If he claims to be born citizen from birth, that, there should be people around that know that. And I even think it's feasible that when he left Paul, he went and asked around. But the whole point is, I've always been a citizen, so have my parents. And so now, and in fact, the scripture basically says, everybody involved is pieced out. I mean, all the, the guards that were going to, the guards that were going to question them. Yeah, they were going to scourge his back. That was the questioning. Um, they all just back out. And then he backs out. And then he gets, totally changes his whole frame of mind here. And I think the lesson here is, we're surrendered to God, but it doesn't mean we roll over and act dumb. It's okay to be assertive. It's, it's okay to use it. This also gives us a lesson, again, that people talk about, but there's injustice in the world. We sometimes forget how much injustice was way, way more to the max than what we have, at least in our country now. Because if he wasn't a Roman citizen, they could flog him, even though he's been found of no guilt at all yet. You're a Roman citizen, you have all kinds of rights. This was not like, oh, God has created us all equal and we all have equal rights. No, in the Roman mind, in the mindset of almost all people were, no, if you're a Roman citizen, you're superior to everybody else, and we do treat you different. Okay. So, how do I type this next? The part that I, I, I see in this whole thing, this is an amazing encounter. And, uh, in fact, one of the things I'm doing with my students is we... We practice encounter. I know that sounds weird. How do you practice God encountering you? But it's on the belief that God wants to encounter us. So we do a thing called conversational gratitude, and we do these steps where you just, it's basically following Philippians 4, where you choose to remind yourselves of what is good and noble and pure. But we actually do it fully engaged. Like I ask them questions like, ask God to bring to mind something you're thankful for. Okay, when did it happen? Like an encounter with God, or just when someone did something nice for you? And I asked them, write down what you were feeling. Was it day? Was it night? Like, get into the detail of it. And it's interesting, as they do that, they re-experience it. And then we go into a time of praise and worship, and it's so much more powerful. And it's also good, because then we talk about some hard things, but it's easier to talk about hard things when you're reminded that God loves you emotionally. Make sense? Because the thing I also see in this whole deal is, Paul refers to... What happened on Damascus many times. We know because he's written in epistles, he will say things like, you know, I encountered God as I told you before. So like when he's traveling around through what's now Turkey or Greece, he still remembers this encounter. And I know sometimes people get leery that like, no, no, it has to be just the word. And I, I read the Bible every day. I mean, or at least really close. I'd say I average seven days out of eight. So I believe in the Bible. But the Bible alone wasn't enough for Paul. He had to have experience with God. He had to have encounter with God. And this whole idea of joint participants in the, in the good news, or the literal, 
together communioners is it's not just intellectual. I, I spent most of my working career around crazy, brainy, genius people, academics. Pure intellectualism doesn't work. It doesn't. I mean, they can tell you 50 reasons why their life's a mess, but their life's still a mess. So being academic about it doesn't solve it. We want to bring a reality thing. We want to bring an inclusive view, just like Paul was all things to all men, to the same level as Paul. He didn't compromise and live a sinful life, but to all that was within him, he was at peace with all men. And that's the same call we have. And now, so if you haven't caught on yet, this is like a transition to communion. Um, so what we're going to celebrate in communion, oh, we're doing this kind. Sorry, I thought you'd have the little cups. I wasn't paying attention. What we're going to do in communion is celebrate being together communioners because we're celebrating the body that was broken for us, the blood spilt for us. And with the same thing, we're actually going to say we identify, our personal identity is we are the beloved of God as known by what he did for us, by the fact that he broke his body for us and blood for us, just like he did for Paul. And what I'm asking us to do is, in, while we're doing this, to also be seeing this and, I guess, uh, how do you say, meditate on the beauty and wonder that God uses visions and dreams for whatever it takes. And in this, I just want us to, I guess, experience that we're surrendering to him the same way Paul lived a surrendered life. Because Paul went to Jerusalem knowing he was going to get arrested. And he still went for it. And that's a beautiful thing. And I want us to share that, that we as a people are commonly sharing a common communion with the same identity of wanting to be broken bread for the world. I'm staying out from Oswald Chambers. Being broken bread and poured out wine for the world. Thank you. Do you want them to just all come up? Yeah. Okay. And, oh, I was going to tell Jerry to stop the tape, but Jerry's behind me. Okay. <laughs> all right, we can go off. Yeah, so do I come up and you can come to either table? So get the stuff and then get back to, uh, just take it back with you because we'll partake at the same time. Um, let's, let's do that. Or Rob can play just drums. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> God, we do thank you. We praise you. We thank you that you did have your body broken for us. We thank you that you've chosen us, that you've chosen us to hear your voice and to get acquainted with you, Lord Jesus, to deeply and intimately know you. Amen? Let's go ahead and enjoy the body or the, the weird flatbread. <laughs> Actually, this is way better. This is... Those little cups taste like styrofoam to me. Mm-hmm. 
Lord, I, I'm even struck right now about how you hold us so precious and valuable that you shed blood to purchase us. And I thank you, Lord, that, that you decided that we're all worth it. That you now see us innocent. You now see us faultless. You see us as your called and chosen ones and that you brag to the whole universe about your power in us. So I ask even now as we read it, as we drink this, Lord, make it more and more real to us that you're with us and that you do have a call on our life to share your love with the whole world, no matter who they are. Amen. Let's drink. Thank you for joining us today at Coastline Church. To find out more information, please visit coastlinefoursquare.com.